You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're going to read today in Galatians chapter 3. And as we find, kind of get settled back into our chairs and grab our Bibles, um, we remember what we're reading today. We're reading God's Word. This means that this is God speaking to us. And when we receive His Word, we receive His truth and and to deny or reject his word is to reject God. And so we come humbly and um, reverent and ready to hear what he has to say to us today. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me, let, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's word. Yeah, I started reading these first few words of this passage. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And I thought, well, let me circle back to that in a bit. Let me see where this is headed and how to communicate and preach this. I'm not sure exactly what's going on and why a, why a greeting like that. But let's move on with the rest. And I basically kind of finished my time and study in this passage And still couldn't figure out, how do we start there with this strange seven-word rebuke? Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Uh, Let's agree that no one likes to hear uh, an an address like that. No one likes to be addressed like that. No one likes to be called a fool. No one likes to be called uh, foolish, stupid. No one likes to be called out for what they have done wrong. Here's maybe a possible modern translation of what Paul may be saying to them um, today. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So exactly, tell me, what do you think about the grace of God? Is there something wrong with you that you don't understand? No, seriously, what is wrong with you? It's almost like he's saying that, and that might even be a nice way of him speaking. I don't know how to preach on this. I know how to feel this about people, right? We know how to feel this, but we don't know how to 
confront someone like this without kind of falling into sin or becoming a person we don't want to be. And so we don't do anything or we are really harsh and we maybe burn bridges when we confront somebody or we do nothing. Those are really the two often courses we take. I've used this analogy before, but I think it's fitting for this as well. Imagine this situation after the service. Some of you are hanging out outside on the sidewalk, and I come up to you rather abruptly and interrupt your conversation, and I say, stop what you're doing right now and move away from here. You'll sound pretty rude, wouldn't it? And assuming that you're in a good mood, maybe feeling a little bit gracious for me, you'll pray for me. You'll think the best of me, maybe, I hope. Now consider this situation is a little different, and you have some more information about what is going on, and I walk up to you rather quickly in the same way, interrupt your conversation abruptly and say, there's a rattlesnake six inches from your feet, move away from here immediately. Well, now I'm not mean to you, and now I actually am your friend. Now I care for you, and what I'm saying, my, my abrupt uh, correction and intrusion into your life is a mercy, it's a gift. And a lot of times when we see rebukes in scripture, we often take it very harshly, And even rebukes from other people, we take it harshly and say, well, why do you think you can talk to me that way? Assuming that it's coming from a place of of bitterness, hatred, indifference. Well, Paul has been very clear that his affection is full for these people. He loves them very much. He's also been clear that his words that he speaks to them are from God's heart. And so when he speaks to them and calls them foolish, he is doing it as an overflow of an abundance of love for them. And so it's good to figure out, well, well, then how is this good? Scripture is filled with warnings like this that seem harsh, but are an overflow of concern and loving warning to us. The kind of confrontation that comes with a tone of maybe a parent after a child that wanders through a, a barrier that separates them from maybe a busy street. You come up to your child and you get down on their level, maybe on a knee. You grab him or her by the shoulders and you say, have you lost your mind? (laughs) What were you thinking? You You don't hate that child. It's because you love that child. Paul's language is like this. It's, it seems harsh, and he calls them fools twice and sarcastically wonders if they have been put under some magic spell because of their actions and the way that they are living are so strangely disconnected from the truth of the gospel. That's the only explanation, that they're just mesmerized by some magic spell. And Paul is their advocate. He's for them. He's not against them. He loves them. He cares for them. And even more, God is their advocate, and he has made that very clear. He loves them. God loves them, and his word is for them. And God loves us, and his word is for us, not to shame us, not to guilt us into some different behavior, but to lead us in the truth. And that's what God is for. And so we want to receive these words as well in the same way. God is for you. Uh, Paul's first seven words are motivated by a dense and abiding love for them. And he confronts them, not by pointing out their sins, but reminding them of who Christ is and what he has done for them. And reminding them that once again, they have deviated from this path of true 
thinking and living and believing and resting. He's reminding them of the nature of faith. What does it mean to walk in faith in your life? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a man, woman, child of faith? And faith is not about a behavior modification. It's not about changing your life. It's not about uh, being that better person, but it's about this spiritual restoration. It's about this miraculous work of God that comes from the outside of us into our life, into our heart, changes us, changes our desires, changes our will, changes our passions, our hopes, our dreams, our fears. And it is really a heart transplant, a heart transplant of faith where our affections are oriented now towards Christ and his will for us rather than our lives the way we want them. And so he reminds them how they were rescued and how they will grow in a relationship with Jesus. And he gets to that point by asking four rhetorical questions. These are questions of faith. These can be questions of faith for us that we ask ourselves as we reframe or maybe understand where are we on that path? Are we walking in faith? Our attitudes, have our attitudes deviated from a place of faith? Have our behaviors, our actions, all of that? This is a good time for us to diagnose our heart as well by looking at these four rhetorical questions. I, I paraphrase these questions in this way, but when we get into each one of them, did you make yourself right? Do you have what it takes? Will you waste your suffering? And where is your hope? And so as we look at each of these rhetorical questions, we are assessing and evaluating what it means to walk by faith and love Jesus. Let's get into those. First one is, did you make yourself right? I, I see in verse 2, he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul is asking, how did you first come to find yourself changed by God and accepted by God in a, in a relationship that wasn't based on your record or your character, but you realized there was a moment when you realized God loves me in spite of all my failures. Is it, did God do this because you did everything that he asked you to do? Uh, does God love you and accept you because he, you cleaned up your life and you finally were in a place where he would look at you and be proud of you? So Paul's asking these rhetorical questions. Uh, was it some formula that you followed and you did all of those steps and you finally got to that place? Did you go to synagogue? Did you, know, did you go to church? Did you read the scriptures? Did you do all the right things as you should? Of course not. We know the answer to this. Even if we look at our own life, we realize that we are not the ones that have done all that God has asked us to, and he loves us still. And so the Galatians are a part of that same story. The message of Christ crucified came to them. They believed it and their life was changed. Remember your conversion, if you're a Christian. Remember your conversion. What was that time like? Somehow, you were cut to the heart. This may have been through a, a parent, a friend, a, a, a youth pastor. Uh, it may have been at um, VBS. It may have been at home as you were doing uh, reading scripture with uh, someone who cares about you, a grandparent maybe. Maybe you were alone, and you were studying God's word. Maybe you were praying Maybe you're going through a hard time, and, and there, was a, there was a time, it doesn't have to be this um, chaos in your life, and then this, it could have, things could have been going well, but things became clear in your heart that, that what it meant to know and follow Jesus was a matter of resting in faith, believing in him, that he died, not that just Jesus died in general, but that Jesus died for you. 
And there was a moment you realized, wait a minute, this isn't just some uh, intellectual thing to believe that there was a man who died for the sins of the world, but if I was the only person on the planet, he still would have done it. And that means I'm forgiven of my sins. That means I am cherished and loved by him. So in that moment, when you remember that time, in that moment, was that, did you come to that moment because you became the person that you've always wanted to be? No. In, in, in fact, it was all despite of that, you were trying to be that better person and God broke through those efforts and said, it's not about that. It's about my love for you. And your heart was captivated and you were changed. And you've been being changed ever since. You're changing from one degree of growing in faith to the next every single day. Every single Christian is a miracle. Every single Christian has that miracle story. And I don't mean that the dynamic expression of that conversion is the same for every person. But every Christian is a miracle in the sense that they have been changed inwardly. They've been given a new heart. Change from a position of death, a spiritual death, to spiritual life in Christ. If you're a Christian, there was a time, and maybe there have been times since, where the work of Christ on the cross was all you needed. Do you remember that? Do you remember those days long ago? (laughs) I remember that. I get hints of it from time to time. And then I feel like a fool. I feel like a foolish person that has forgotten Do you remember that Jesus was all you needed? What has has rushed into that need? What has rushed in to become, now you need all these things. Now you need so much. Now you need all this affection and all of this um, hope for the future. You need all of these things to be lined up perfectly in your life. Everything needs to be certain. Why? There was a point, do you remember? Maybe you said it out loud and maybe you said it in your own heart and you said it to Jesus. You said, In this very moment, you satisfy me completely, completely. Do you remember that? That wasn't an accident. That's true. That wasn't a mistake. That wasn't being naive. That wasn't being overly ambitious. This is actually what faith produces in our hearts. A real rest, a real belief that no matter what storm is going on in my life, around my life, Jesus, you are all I need, and I'm okay. Paul is saying, why would you be tricked to believe anything else? Why would you give that up? Why would you give it up? Why would you walk away from that peace? Why would you walk away from that rest? Why would you do it? And go towards a, a, a way of living to like constantly be in this race and this wrestling with God and wrestling with the world and fighting for people's affection and needing all of these things that will never satisfy you? Why would you do that? Why would you make your faith more complicated than it needs to be and even abandon your faith by deserting your only hope? So salvation by grace is the greatest theme in all of history. It's the greatest theme in all of history. And one reason why Paul is so passionate about his communication here, why he's so passionate about correcting them and saying, what have you done? Oh, Paul, we're just, you know, a lot of opinions out there. What have you done? 
There is nothing greater than this. It's the greatest theme in all of history. Salvation by grace through faith. Salvation by grace says this, I have failed so bad in God's eyes that he had to die for me, but I'm so loved in God's eyes that he was glad to die for me. That's what this means. And Paul says, why would you give that up? Why would you flip this and say, I'm not as bad as God says I am. And maybe he doesn't love me as much as I thought he did. And maybe I should do my best to kind of stay in his love. We don't make ourselves right. We are rescued. And if we don't believe that we are all that bad, then the grace of God will, will mean nothing to us. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying if, if the grace of God is not enough, if you don't believe that you are completely dependent on the grace of God and his mercy, if you believe that you can do a little bit for God to earn his acceptance, then you have to do it all. It's not just like some or all. It's, it's, it's nothing or all. And so if you're going to do a little bit, you have to run the whole race. And who's going to do that? You've already, you've already lost. You're, you're condemned as you stand. You, you, you can't do it. And if we believe we could be made right through our righteousness, then it would mean that God messed up sending his son. If we believe that we can offer something of our own record or character or merit to earn his forgiveness, then that means God messed up by sending Jesus. That means God failed. That means God made a mistake and it was pointless. Who would send their son to die for no reason? And why would God do that above all, above all beings? So you see what Paul is saying. Do you make yourself right? And then he asks another question. We'll go on to the next one as Paul moves on. Do you have what it takes? That's my paraphrase of verse three. We can look at that again. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Okay, let's, let's say for sake of conversation that we're saved by grace. Grace is our get-out-of-hell-free card, right? Let's, hey, don't take that quote as a snapshot of my sermon. This is all in context. Let's say for conversation, okay, we get, we get out of hell. God forgives us. He, says, he puts us back on dry land, and he says, okay, be good. I got you out of this hole that you couldn't get out of yourself, and now I'm putting you on the right path. Focus. And the purpose of our salvation is to be continually made in the image of Christ, obedient, perfect, holy, just like Jesus. Do you have what it takes to stay on that path? Do you have what it takes? Do you think inside yourself you can actually do that? If you have what it takes, you don't need Jesus, and you're wasting your time. That's what Paul says. Do you really think you have what it takes to finish that race, to be like Christ? He says to be perfected, to be made perfect, to accomplish all of the plans and purposes that God has for you. Can you do that alone? If you can, I feel very bad for you, he says. But the gospel is not just entry into this new life with God. It is, it is the entry and it is the completion. We need the grace of God at the very beginning and every step along the way. It is not just the power of God. Paul says it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. It is also the way by which we grow every single day. It is sufficient for all of our needs. 
How important is the work of the Holy Spirit in the, in the life of the Christian? It is essential. Paul says, having begun by the Spirit, do you think you can finish? I've had people tell me, I'd like to be a Christian, but not one of those Christians. You know, I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to be one of those like Holy Spirit born again Christians. What they mean, I think, sometimes is they view Christianity as a way of becoming more self-improved. And God can help you be a better version of yourself. And that's good enough for you. Christianity is not about the work that you do, but about the work that Christ has done and the work that Christ has done on the cross being applied to your life through the Holy Spirit And this means unless the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you haven't begun to be a Christian. It means that if the Holy Spirit has not come in and there hasn't been this radical experience with the truth of of his grace, you haven't begun to be a Christian because it's not about behavior modification. It's not about becoming a better version of yourself. It is about becoming a whole new creation. Some might see a life with God like a ladder to heaven. I've also heard it like this before. So our desire is to be with God, and we want to get closer and closer to God, and we kind of climb this ladder. And we say, well, no one can do that. So God, by his grace, he kind of puts us on that top, or he puts us on that bottom rung, maybe somewhere in the middle, you know, if we think he's being overly gracious. Um, And so we're on the ladder, and that's good news. And we wouldn't be on the ladder without the grace of God, but we climb and we work and we put our effort in. And sometimes we fall down a couple steps, but then we keep climbing back up. And the point is, at the end of our life, we want to be at the top or somewhere close enough where God can kind of reach down and help us the rest of the way. But the gospel is not a step on the ladder. It's, um, it's every step. You know, the mercy of God is not just that one first step. It's, it's every single step, every single step, every step that we take in our faith, every movement of progress, every growth, everything that God is doing in our life that's making us more and more like Jesus, it's by his grace. We don't have what it takes to be saved within ourselves, and we don't have it, what it takes to grow to become more like Jesus. And that means what is lacking in your life right now, God desires to supply to you. What that means is that if you feel weak, if you feel discouraged, if you feel like, I don't want to climb anymore, it's the very thing that God is wanting to say to you is saying, then rest in me. I have what it takes for you. It's not through your effort of your righteousness, but through the work of my grace. We're fully dependent on him. We're completely gracious. So Paul asked him, do you have what it takes to finish that? So, so why begin something knowing that you need God and then go throughout your life thinking that you don't? So you're someplace right now in your life where you're like, I know I love Jesus and he's good enough for me, but you are striving. You are working hard. You are, you are exhausted with all that is on your shoulders. And there's something here that Jesus wants to say to you, to rest in his good news for you, that there, you remember a time where he was enough, and that time is still now. He hasn't changed. 
We don't have what it takes. And so it changes our, our frame of, of thinking. It changes where we put our energy. Now we don't put our energy in trying to like be good for God. We put our energy into focusing our gaze on Christ because that takes energy, takes effort. And that's also something he supplies. Sometimes we're lacking in faith. Sometimes we're lacking in endurance. Sometimes we're lacking in wisdom and patience. Sometimes we're lacking in everything. And we just say, I don't have enough right now. In fact, I don't have anything. And he receives that also. This isn't a combination work. It's not God saying, you meet me halfway and you'll be surprised at what I can do with you. Find that verse in the scripture that says, God helps those who help themselves, and I will give you a dollar. <laughs> it's not there. Paul asks the next question. Let's go on to the next one. Will you waste your suffering? Verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Now, this is an interesting question that Paul asks in verse 4, and, and I had to think about it for quite a while. Um, one of the reasons that these Christians should be pitied, and so Paul is coming at them and confronting them and, and really feeling bad for them, not bad in the sense of like compassion, but actually like sorry, like I feel, feel sorry for you you're, because I just, you're being so foolish. The reason that he's feeling that way is because they They've suffered a lot. And they should be the most pitied and foolish of all people if salvation is not by faith. And they still endured all those hardships in life. They were persecuted. They came under attack for their faith. They sacrificed a lot, maybe even family. Maybe they were, they were split up from family because of their faith. They had to abandon and kind of walk away from a whole former life. And for some people... That is dramatic. Some people, that is just everything in their life is ripped from them. Some, it's not. Some, it's a little bit easier and a little bit more seamless. But in this time, we could expect that this was, I mean, this was life or death. It was dramatic, and families were split up, and maybe even parents with their children. And definitely as a society, they were ostracized and ridiculed. And I wonder, um, they are wondering at this time, and I have wondered at times, and I wonder if you have wondered, <laughs> is it worth it? You ever thought that? It's okay if you have. You don't have to tell me if you have, but I'll admit to you that I have often wondered. This isn't easy, God. And then in the back of my mind, I kind of think, what if it's not worth it? Everybody, people seem to be doing fine. Everybody's hurting. Everybody's kind of struggling through life. And sometimes to follow Jesus, you, suffer, you, you lose more. And I wonder, is it worth it? We'll come back next week and we'll answer that question. No, I'm just kidding. We'll do it right now. <laughs> yes. So Paul reasons with us, and let's do that. Let's think about it. If Jesus didn't die for you on the cross, all of your pain, all of your sorrow, all of your struggle in life, all of your tears, 
are just a miserable waste of time and we should just feel sorry for one another all day long. And it wouldn't be an understatement to say, I feel sorry for you. That suffering means absolutely nothing. Well, see you later. <laughs> Pretty sad. Your heart's broken. You lost things. You sacrificed. You did the right thing and bad things happened. That's the way the cookie crumbles. I hope things turn out better for you. What a miserable life. No sacrifice, no kind deed, no sleepless night, no virtuous act. You need to know if our salvation is not by grace through faith in the work of Christ for us on the cross, what fools we are to endure any unnecessary suffering in this life that we don't have to. What a fool. But if Jesus did die for you, and in dying for us, he rescues us from the curse of sin and all of its consequences, oh my goodness, then every hardship, every sacrifice, every suffering, every loss, every tear, every sleepless night is at its very best temporary. And it is advancing God's purposes in you at every step until he finishes the good work that he began in you. If, if this is true, if he died for us and is alive today, then nothing can stop his plans. And not only can nothing stop his plans, but even the bad stuff that happens to us will be used to accomplish his plans. And we will be last of all pitied and foolish people. We will be triumphant, victorious, renewed, restored in everything that he has planned for us. This means that the good things will never be taken from us, the bad things will never last, and the best things are always yet to come. That's our hope. That is the truth of the gospel. It isn't just your sins were forgiven. It is for every single point in your life until the day that Jesus returns. So Paul is saying, what's the point of your suffering if you are going to turn away from the grace of God to a life of spiritual activity just to earn God's favor. So where's your hope? Where is your hope? Where will you put your hope, your focus, your rest? This is where he closes with his final question in verse 5. <clears throat> Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? or by hearing with faith. Now, I know how that sounds. It sounds like every single verse that he has said already. <laughs> but he asks this. He's asking, does God wait for us to clean up our act before providing powerfully in our lives, powerfully in our lives through the work of his spirit? Therefore, the phrase, God helps those who helps themselves, should never be uttered from our lips. We should pause here and apply what we've just heard. 
we all want God to act. We all want God to do something. So this, this isn't, this is good that Paul goes here now because this isn't a sense of just trust God and rest, rest in God. And you can find that peace for a moment, but then you wake up and you're like, but, but life goes on. Like there's things that need to happen. Like there are legitimate concerns and heartaches and troubles. There's pain and betrayal. There's needs. I'm, I'm still embodied. Like my, my spiritual life is embodied in like a real culture and real society. So I need help. And, and, and believe me, that like God recognizes that and he doesn't dismiss that. He doesn't say just the spiritual matters. Like, no, he embodied, like, the Holy Spirit, God, the, the God, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, took on flesh. This is the great miracle of Scripture, is that he is with us in body, and it matters. And so, our life matters. But here is what he's asking. We all want him to act and respond and supply us with courage and guidance and blessings. How are you going about seeking those things? The way we get the Spirit to do miracles, the way we get God to act and to answer our needs is not by pushing and doing. It is not by manipulating and controlling. It is not by, it is not by any of those things, but it is, by, it is by resting in the gospel. Because of Christ, we're accepted as we are, and he is working out his plans for us. We need to realize that the solution is not to try harder but to consider areas in our life where we are still living by a works-based righteousness and to transfer our hope in those things happening the way that we want to make us comfortable, transferring our hope from that mentality to Christ who will care for us in all of our needs, transferring our hope from ourselves to God. It's as simple as that. Am I trusting in myself to complete these things and someone else to do these things for me? Am I trusting and resting in God. And to have a vivid picture of Christ crucified for us, Paul goes back to that. He keeps going back to that. He says, you saw him. See, this is the great thing is Paul's actually talking to literal people that actually saw Jesus crucified. And he's like, you saw him. You know what he did for you. And we get to look, we get to look at the cross every, every week. We come and we worship and we put our eyes on the cross. We see God's love and faithfulness poured out for us. And turning our attention and trusting in him. It's possible to ask God for things without faith. That's interesting. It's, it's possible to, to be a Christian, to go to God, to ask him for, to do things without faith. And Here's how that looks. God, I have a problem with anger. Please remove it by your power. Please do that right now. <laughs> it might look perfectly normal. Like that's a very normal Christian thing to do. Are you really struggling? Just ask God to take it away. Perfectly gospel-centered. Huh? But here's where it's not faith. We are asking God to address our behavior. We're asking God to change our works. We're asking God to change the fruit of a heart that hasn't been changed. Asking God to do things in faith doesn't just go for the behavior. Because where we lack faith is not in our actions, but we lack faith in our heart. That's the problem. Paul would tell us that our anger, our lust, our, our lack of self-control, our fear, our, 
our manipulation and control, our need for the affection of others, our people-pleasing, it's all a result of not living in step with the reality of what Jesus has done for us. Paul says, that's the problem. Who of you can get the Holy Spirit to change you and to do a miraculous work in you by forcing him to do so? You're asking for all the wrong things. It's a result of not living in line with the gospel. It's the result of self-righteousness. When you became a Christian, Jesus was enough. Why is he not enough anymore? He began as a savior, but now he's become like a manager, a landlord. Now he's become a landlord of your life, supplying needs when something breaks. God, something's broken. Don't want to fix it myself. I could, but I really don't want to. I'll be right there. He's not our landlord. He's not our landlord. To allow God to address your problems in faith, ask this. Uh, Why don't we keep that up, Marjan, just for a couple moments so people can look at this together. God, what is it that I'm holding on to that is making me so angry? What is it that I must have that I don't have that is making me feel incomplete and out of control? Who or what am I looking to for comfort that I must only look to you for? Where am I not trusting in your finished work on the cross for me as the source of my completeness? Help me to trust in you for my completeness, my worth, and my hope for all that I could possibly need. Um, This approach is a lot harder and longer than what we're normally accustomed to. This is a lot different than God don't want to, don't care anymore, make things better if you can. I mean, our approach to life's trouble and our sanctification is often so much different than this, but this is where he meets us. It's more painful to do it this way, but it's the only approach that will transform you. That's how God works. Because the power of the Spirit is not applied by works, but by faith. That's what Paul is saying. If you can't apply salvation by works, then how can you apply the work of the Holy Spirit for your sanctification by works? It's all by faith. It's all by resting. It's all by His mercy. All the way, completely and fully. And that is the work that we give ourselves to in our life. That is the energy. That's the effort. Um, There are probably three or more sermons to really unpack this. I admit that. Um, So let's start with number two. No, I'm kidding. Um, But I'm going to tie up. Let's tie up right now. Paul addresses the the curse. He addresses the curse that comes through a works-based righteousness. Um, And it goes back to the beginning where I mentioned that this isn't about behavior modification. It's about a heart transformation. Everything that we are in a spiritual sense, God is changing. He's changing us outwardly into a physical sense. Paul says we should be like Abraham who, and we learn that righteousness is by faith, that the righteous shall live by faith. What does it mean to live by something? It means that this this thing becomes the thing that carries the most weight in our life. So to live by faith means I'm not... 
what's driving me? What's the fuel and the energy behind the movement in my life? Is it my comfort? Is it my position in life? Is it my esteem in the eyes of others? Is it my wealth and power? Is it uh, my impulses and appetites and sexual desires? Is it my cravings? Is it my future, my financial hope? You know, what is it? Okay, to live by faith means that we transfer what was most important and we put the right person in that place. We put faith in Jesus in that place. Carrying the most weight, finding peace with God. To rest in our own behavior as a means of acceptance makes us very anxious and insecure people. And we can never be sure if we're living up to the standards that God's placed in our life. We can never be sure if we're living up to our own standards. And when we think we're doing a good job, we feel really prideful and great. And when we think we're doing a bad job, we feel like losers and that we're not good enough and no one loves us. And Paul's saying, do you still want to make being good the most important thing in your life? After all I've talked about, does it sound like the better path? No. There's only one thing that can change the spiritual condition that we find ourselves in, and that is for the curse to be removed. And it was removed by Jesus becoming that curse for us. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Notice it doesn't say he took our curse, but he, he became our curse. In becoming our curse, he, Jesus was regarded as a sinner and us receiving him by faith means that we are now regarded as righteous. This is what it means that the righteous will live by faith. Jesus did not just take our sin and throw it away. He became our sin so that there was an exchange. He became, he became our sin and we became his righteousness. If you haven't trusted in the work of Christ as your only basis of forgiveness and acceptance, the gift is free. You do not have to clean yourself up. He offers it to you. The promise of the gospel comes to all who believe. And when we believe, we, we receive that promised Holy Spirit, that indwelling presence and power of God who applies what Christ did on the cross, who adopts us, accepts us, forgives us, and sees us as flawless before God and adopted as his children forever. And nothing can ever take that away. Think of the people in this passage. What did they do to receive the power and presence of God? What did they do? They heard the gospel and they rested in it. That's what you need to do. Hear the gospel and rest in it. Jesus takes your place so that you can take his place before God as a beloved child. If you are a Christian, you need to be melted and saturated with the gospel no less today than the first day you believed. No less today. You and I never get beyond our need for the grace of God we never get beyond it. We need it every 
moment. Never move on from the gospel. You never need to, and you'll never want to.